Open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Welcome to a very special episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and we are starting a new program that I'm very excited about. Uh, we've teased this in an episode a week or so ago, um, and it's really about surviving and thriving. We're going to talk about trying to survive and thrive in training. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Surgical Vision. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. Today I have with me uh, Dr. Sharif Fathy, who is um, a PGY3 resident, along with Dr. David Felstead, who is a PGY4 resident. So we're going to actually dive into what is residency like nowadays. I have my own preconceived notions. I think when you've, you've been out of training for a while, you kind of think that things are always uh, like they were when, when and where you trained. But the reality is life moves on. And in the current era we're living in, I feel like things are changing at a, at a really exponential clip. So today I'm really excited to have um, my, my co-moderators, uh, Cherie and Dave, to help talk about what it's like being a resident nowadays and maybe together we can talk about some strategies for making this, uh, this journey as being a resident a little bit uh, more enjoyable. So, uh, Cherie, I'll just start with you. If you don't mind, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from, a little bit on your background, and, uh, and where you're training at this point. Yeah, for sure. So, yep, I'm Cherie. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee originally, and um, went to medical school and undergraduate actually both at Vanderbilt and then ended up in Philadelphia at Wills for residency. I went into ophthalmology you know, for the, the ability to, to provide direct concrete answers for patients for the most part and be able to deliver results. That to me was the most exciting part of doing ophthalmology in medical school. So what was your, what, besides ophthalmology, what was, um, well, let me, let me ask this a different way. What was your least favorite rotation in medical school? <laughs> Ironically, general surgery. I just was not that into waking up that early um, and, and doing the rounds and, and having um, that kind of environment, so to speak. So that was my least favorite. But then I rotated on ophthalmology during that rotation and just felt like I had found my people. Yeah, I, I know that feeling. And let's, let's ask this question. If you couldn't be an ophthalmologist, what do you think you would do? So I think I would probably, if I had to stay in medicine, it would have been pediatrics. I really enjoyed working with the little kiddos, though I don't know that I could say the same about pediatric ophthalmology, but that's a different different talent. Yeah. <laughs> um, but definitely pediatrics. And then if I didn't do ophthalmology and didn't stay in medicine, I'd probably do uh, journalism or something like that. That was actually a, a big passion of mine before getting into medical school. 
Excellent. Well, you know, it's interesting with uh, publications and, and, and things like this, you can still scratch that itch. Absolutely. Um, Dave, I want to switch over to you. And um, why don't you tell us kind of the same story? Uh, where, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And uh, where are you now? Thanks, Gary. So my name is Dave Felstead. I'm a PGY4 currently at the Medical College of Georgia down in Augusta. Some of you may know it by the Masters Golf Tournament. I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, right near Notre Dame. And when I was about 13, we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm sort of a non-traditional in the sense that I did um, accounting right out of um, high school. And um, about halfway through the program, I decided that just was not for me. I kind of went into it because my dad was a corporate um, accountant. And, you know, that was kind of the, the role model I looked towards. But as I got into the field, I decided, you know what, I like working with my hands and I like talking to people and spreadsheets don't really fulfill either of those roles. Um, so just kind of out of luck, my parents went golfing one day and they were paired up on a course with Bob Sione. Wow. Um, and he was talking to them about, you know, what he does. And they told him, hey, I've got a son that uh, doesn't really like accounting. And he said, well, why don't you have him come see what I do for a day? Um, and so I remember getting into his um, clinic and going upstairs to his ASC and watching um, all his cataract surgeries. And my mind was just blown away. Um, I just really fell in love with it. And so that same time, um, I decided to finish my accounting degree and at the same time go to medical school. Um, and so I got very, very busy and got accepted to uh, Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine in Glendale. And the rest is kind of history from there. Excellent. And same question for you. What was your least favorite rotation in medical school? So for me, I'm a doer. Um, I'm always tinkering. I like working with my hands. I like um, anything I can do to be proactive. And so for me, psychiatry was a very difficult rotation. Um, I did it at the VA up in Northern Arizona. And so, um, you know, I just didn't see a whole lot of variable pathology. Um, and I couldn't get myself engaged enough in, in that rotation. I think all the other ones I fell in love with and I had a hard time, um, you know, not wanting to go into some of those things like pediatrics or family med or internal. Um, I found, you know, most of those rotations were pretty enjoyable. You know, if I wouldn't have matched in ophthalmology, I think emergency medicine would have been my backup. Yeah. Um, I like the variety. I like the pathology. I sort of like some of the acute nature of things. Um, but I'm just so grateful that I matched in ophthalmology. Yeah. Well, I, I, we're, we're grateful that you're, you're in ophthalmology as well. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. I, I'm excited to get a little bit of a perspective from you all on what it's like nowadays. Um, you, you both have had, you know, number of years of experience as residents. Um, the first question I might ask is, and I'm sure this sort of varies from uh, residency to residency, but do you feel like in your life, in your program, and Sheree, I'll start with you, do you feel like there's more competition or collaboration between yourself and other residents? And what I mean by that is when I was in residency, there was sort of this sense of competitiveness and you don't get into ophthalmology without having a little bit of a competitive edge. It's a hard residency to get. Sometimes you don't check that at the door and there can still be some competitive nature. Some of that's healthy where you want to do your best and it's not necessarily at the expense of others, but there can also be an unhealthy nature to competition uh, if it's not held in check. And, and, and the converse would be the collaborative effort where, you know, the rising tide is floating all boats. People are trying to help each other. The, the senior residents are looking after the younger residents and trying to show them the ropes. 
I'm just curious in your experience, you know, do you find there to be a good balance uh, of that in today's landscape? Yeah, I would say the best part of Wills, which is, has, is a very difficult residency, has been the collaborative nature amongst our co-residents. Um, I don't think we would really be able to function or stay efficient without us working together. And so, for example, at Wills, in the second year, beginning of your second year, end of your first year, it's just the second year residents, the newly minted second year residents who are running the emergency room. So that's eight people seeing a ton of different eyeball pathology throughout the day. And sometimes it's just one resident there during the morning, and then it really is dependent upon all other seven residents, you know, forsaking their lunch breaks or forsaking time after work to come and help clean up the ER. Um, so we are very heavily reliant on each other um, to, to keep us uh, doing well and feeling well. And similarly, we don't leave wills without every clinic being done. Um, so we have a no resident left behind policy. Um, so we're extremely fortunate here that our co-residents are always, you know, they always have our backs. They're always checking in. Similarly, when you're first year in the emergency room, you're paired with second years who are there to be your mentors, to help you walk through difficult patients, um, to help double check your exams. And so it's an extremely collaborative environment here. It's, it's what I'm most thankful for. Well, that's great to hear. Dave, has your experience been similar? Yeah, you know, I think, Gary, I can definitely um, speak to what you said earlier that, you know, our profession attracts a certain personality, I think, to a large extent. And we're all very competitive and it, it is very hard getting into ophthalmology. But I felt like as soon as I matched, so much of that went away. And as I started into residency, um, all I felt was an overwhelming sense of community with my residents. Um, my training program is small. There's three residents per year, nine total. And we're basically in one main hospital with a bunch of connections to the VA, the children's. Um, and so, you know, for our residents, we have to be collaborative. We have to rely on each other. Um, and we pride ourselves on our friendliness um, and our sense of community. Um, you know, we, we take buddy call when we first start. And so you're really connected at the hip to your senior resident. And he is showing you the ropes or she is showing you the ropes um, for those first couple months. And then they're always there throughout the first year as you take primary Q3 call. And I just remember being up so many nights, um, you know, with really complex cases and um, needing to call my senior resident to ask a question. And they were always so nice and helpful. Um, never, ever gave me backlash or difficulty. Um, and so I just feel like, you know, I think as soon as we got into ophthalmology, the, the mindset changes. And I felt that as I go to conferences as well. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, when I got into ophthalmology, I mean, to be honest, I kind of felt like I'm getting into this field where everyone is smarter than me, and I'm going to have to pretend like I'm smart and just hope that no one finds out. Um, and I guess until now, until I admitted it, um, no one has really found out. So um, it is funny how you get into a field and it feels overwhelming, and then you're welcomed in, um, and you feel like you're part of it before you know it. Um, you know, I, I had sort of the same experience with um, the uh, three-person per year residency at UK. And I just remember the way that the chief resident um, sort of took me under his wing, um, how the rest of, uh, of the residents really sheltered us as first years and showed us the ropes and showed us how to use an indirect and showed us how to refract and, you know, even doing little, little things like lasers, et cetera. Um, there's such a camaraderie that's built uh, among healthy training programs. And yeah, it's tough and it's stressful, but you kind of feel like a band of brothers or, a, you know, I'm sure a sisterhood 
uh, um, you know, fraternity sorority kind of deal. And uh, it's, it's uh, really fantastic to have that feeling, even when it's really stressful. Any other comments on that? Could I just add, I think um, you bring up such an important mindset. You know, I, I felt the same way coming in, like, oh, I must be the dumbest person out of this huge group of people that are, you know, smarter than me, more gifted, more talented. Um, and then I, that, that really changed as I began looking at applications this year as a senior resident and just seeing that everybody's application that came in was just glowing. You know, we just have so many smart people and yet they're all talented in so many different ways. Um, and that was the fun part for me is, is just to see where are people's strengths at. Um, and it helped me realize, wow, like, you know, look what I could bring to the table compared to this person. Um, you know, they're better at this, but maybe I'm better at that. And so it really does become a, a growing um, experience for us as we look at each other's strengths. Um, as step one just changed from a scored scale to pass fail, um, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how does that translate into how we evaluate each other. And I think before we looked at each other's strengths as a score, you know, oh, I got this score on that test or my step two was this. So I must be so, you know, better or worse than the next person. Um, but what I realized in medicine is we're all smart. We all work hard and we all care. Um, and so I think that's going to change the landscape dramatically. Yeah. Sheree, what do you think about that? I, I, I'll reserve my opinion. I want to hear what you, you think about this. Do you think it's a good thing, a bad thing, or um, a, a net neutral thing that the step one has changed to pass-fail starting in 2022? You know, I, I thought studying for step one was such a miserable experience and so high yield. Um, I guess my, my are so low yield, and I just say so high yield, that's my conscious trying to make me feel like some part of that was worth it um, to study for it. But it's, you know, it's one of those things that I, there have been studies that have sort of inconclusively seen, does it help with your OCAP scores? Does it help if you've scored highly on step one? Does it then help you in retaining this minutia that can help you pick up on rare things for patients? And I mean, I guess, thankfully, they've been mostly inconclusive to my knowledge. Um, and so I honestly think that, you know, step one was, was very low yield and, and don't mind it switching to pass fail. I do think this is going to switch to then programs focusing on step two. So I think it's going to trade one beast in for the other, but hopefully at least step two is a little bit more clinically useful. I just, I think it's going to end up being a net neutral. Step two is going to be more meaningful now and people have to take it earlier. I, I sort of see us all as rats in a maze that, you know, that we're not designing, but we have to live within. And so, you know, as soon as you change the incentive from one thing to another, you're just going to find a new path, a new quicker route through the maze to the, to the reward. Um, so, you know, I think that you guys are exactly right. I also worry a little bit about whether class rank and medical school prestige is going to have a higher weight in regard to who gets certain residencies. Um, for me, you know, I went to, a, 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 I mean, I was, I'm very proud of my medical school, but I went to a very, you know, average state medical school that no one is going to, you know, be too impressed with uh, necessarily. I mean, I'm very proud of it, but you know, it's not like it's, it's, um, you know, going to be super impressive on an application. Um, my step one score was something that helped me. I feel like get, access to something like an ophthalmology residency. So for me, you know, I look at this as something that really probably helped me, but at the same time, I'm sure the same number of people it helps, you know, it may hurt a greater percentage. So, 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of with you all. Um, I do think that it's, it's um, kind of a, a low yield test in terms of predicting who is going to be, you know, ultimately successful in what profession. Uh, but it is just redesigning the, uh, the maze, if you will. So uh, I think that's something that uh, remains to be seen how it actually is going to affect our profession. I hope that the AUPO, the Association for Ophthalmology Residencies, does let us know, you know, how they hope to incorporate or suggest that programs incorporate new things to to help uh, evaluate potential residents. Uh, because, you know, if it's something we can all get on board and make it a fruitful decision and a, a more effective way to evaluate candidates for the residency, then it may actually end up being a helpful thing, but it, it does need to be transparent, or I hope it is. We, we need to eliminate the guesswork. Uh, as medical students, you're so, we're so stressed out, and, and it's uh, kind of a, um, it's a tough time, as we can all remember. So, you know, I wanna, I'm going to actually sort of um, continue on this, this, this topic a little bit. Um, and it's really, I guess it's a, it's a tangent in some ways, but personal life versus professional life. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit in other venues about work-life balance as physicians. How do we avoid burnout? Um, I will be very honest, you know, for me in residency, um, you know, it's, it's stressful in and of itself, as I recall, <laughs> uh, but it's also being stacked on a very intense undergrad experience in my case um, and probably most of our cases a very intense medical ex school experience. And then you're starting off as a resident, not really knowing anything about ophthalmology. So, you know, you're already sort of coming in as a resident with, with little reserve in the tank and sort of pre burned out. And I think that that, that course to burnout is much, much shorter. How are you all holding up as residents? Um, and, and, Sheree, please take it away. I'd love to know how, how you feel like you're doing and maybe do you have ways of, of keeping a little piece of yourself from um, being in, you know, sort of um, saturated from medical training? Yeah, um, I can definitely sympathize with you so much. I think the first year of my residency was probably one of the toughest years in my life in terms of just trying to balance being a, a busy resident, a, you know, very... Uh, fulfilling, but uh, but also demanding personal and family life, um, and then just trying to learn ophthalmology, which you don't get much exposure to in medical school, and we're getting even less exposure to with our new curriculum, um, and trying to do well. That was just so incredibly stressful in that first year. Um, I think it was the second half of the year when you start to feel a little bit more comfortable, and then when I reminded myself that you know, at the end of the day, I'm still a, a supposedly a functioning, fully functionable human being. Um, so I should be able to remember to do the things that made me happy. So it was, um, you know, setting up the time for myself to, to be able to cook myself some of my favorite meals or rejoining a gym. Um, I really like to read and I made that a priority for myself to still incorporate reading for pleasure. Um, and I think being a second year also makes things so much better. The environment is not new. Your faculty know you and, and trust you at this point in your exam, which is, allows you to have much more fruitful conversations about management versus just learning things about the exam. Um, so definitely being in residency longer helps um, just feeling more comfortable. 
but the initial stress of being a first year is something that I hope gets more attention um, and hopefully gets better with this addition of the integrated residency, so the integrated intern year. I think that would be a great way to get early, um, soon-to-be ophthalmology residents involved in um, the more high anxiety things um, while uh, perhaps in a buddy system earlier on or the opportunity to partake in wet labs to help just decrease some of that anxiety before you come in. Because I can think of so many call nights as a first year where you're, you know, you're asking, am I going to get my first canthotomy tonight? Have I have never done that before? Watching YouTube videos. Um, so any way to decrease that stress would be so helpful. Um, and I think that would really um, help in decreasing burnout, at least in my case, it would have. Sheree, tell me a little bit about the integrated internship. And just for those who don't know, just explain that a little bit, because I think that is a big shift that's that's um, sure. that's coming. So I, I believe eventually all residencies will be required to have an intern year that is built into their current ophthalmology residency. So that means either linking with their uh, general surgery intern years or a general uh, medicine intern year. Um, some programs have a mix of both, but um, some are pure, uh, choosing either to link a few months of ophthalmology residency with uh, general surgery wards or with uh, rotations on internal medicine. Um, I think ideally a mix of both would be awesome. So having your exposure to the general surgery uh, residents and also the, the common problems that can happen in taking care of post-operative patients would be very crucial for ophthalmology residents. So you still have that exposure. Um, and similarly with internal medicine to get your um, feet wet in the uh, important clinical problems that you should be expected to know as a physician. That's what puts us apart from other um, specialties um, or other non-healthcare providers that are not MDs. And at the same time, now you get a few months of ophthalmology so that you can, you know, basically learn the basics of the examination. I think some integrated intern years provide some buddy calls that you take at the time or some wet labs to get you um, you know, essentially get your feet wet in the basics of surgery or the basics of um, clinical rotations so that you're not completely new when you're stepping into your first year of ophthalmology residency. Yeah, that, that, that sounds fantastic. Um, I think that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful idea. Dave, tell, you're a little bit lo longer um, in your path. You, you're a PGY4. Um, talk to me a little bit about how have you been able to balance your personal life with your professional life and, and also um, maybe family life with, with that. You know, Gary, this one hits uh, really home for me. And I think my situation is just so dramatically different from the majority of ophthalmology residents. And so I hope what I say may help just a handful of uh, residents that have kids at home and a wife or a husband um, that they're trying to support. Um, so I have a wife that stays at home with my four little kids. Um, my kids are 18 months apart, very close together. The oldest is seven. Um, and when we moved from PGY1 to PGY2, my wife was pregnant, and we had just had our baby about 10 days before I started a primary call as an ophthalmology resident. Um, and I just remember being just so tired. Um, we took Q3 call our first year, and then when I came home, you know, I had to be on baby duty um, as well as study and help my wife out. And so, you know, life balance for me for the first year probably didn't happen. Um, as much as I wanted it to. And I was trying to do probably too much and study a little bit too much. Um, and looking back, I think I did the best I could. I think by the end of my first year, burnout was a pretty close call for me. Um, and I started to make a lot of changes. And for me, that included exercise. Um, 
where we live in Georgia, there's a great trail system that takes my, from my house to my work about 30 minutes on a bike. And for me, that became my safe haven, you know, waking up in the morning, biking into work. I could get right upstairs to a call room and shower and put on some scrubs. And my day just became so much better. Um, and I found more balance as call kind of lightened up. Um, for me, that was just a major deal change, uh, game changer. You know, I think the training landscape, and I think Sheree brings up so many good points about the integrated um, programs kind of easing residents um, into the process. For me, I did not have an integrated program. I went to a transitional year up in Spokane, Washington. Um, but I still got some ophthalmology experience under my belt before coming. And I will say that I think these new experiences, there's no easy way around them. They're going to come and you're going to have to encounter them and you have to be okay with not knowing everything. That's part of the learning process. And for me, that was hard to accept because I wanted to be the person that knew what they were doing at all times. And yet I wasn't. And um, looking back, I realized that's just part of the learning process. You know, doing your first canthotomy, canthalysis, or your first FACO, those are scary moments. Um, but I look back on them with so much fondness because I learned so much during those first encounters. Yeah, Dave, you're you're um, you're preaching to the choir a little bit here. Um, I was, uh, you know, been married for um, almost 21 years now. I've got two kids, had two kids in medical school, and so um, going through intern year and my early residency days, I had little little ones at home, um, and I remember just you know, feeling like, you know, they say, you know, residency is, is a marathon, not a sprint, but I just felt like it was a sprint-a-thon. It was the pace of a sprint with the length of a marathon and really uh, not a lot of water breaks in between. Um, so I, I remember um, coming home and, you know, it's kind of the same thing. Um, also trying to mixing, mixing in some moonlighting um, just to kind of keep the lights on. Um, I was trying to do that as well. And it was, um, what, I, what I've learned from that process is a couple of things. Number one, you'll never work as hard as you work in, in residency. So everything for the rest of your life is gonna feel not as hard. So there's an aspect of, I've done the hardest work I'm gonna ever do in my life and that's behind me and everything is downhill. So that's a good thing. Uh, but you can't let your red line be your, become your new baseline. And what I mean by that is, you know, Work-life balance, I don't necessarily know if I, I love that term. I like to talk in terms of capacity. And, and what that means is, you know, we're all going to have something that happens. It comes along, whether it's an illness, whether it's a financial thing, whether it's a friend or family member who needs you in one capacity or another, that's going to take you out of, of whatever you're doing at the time. If you're running with no margin and no capacity and something happens, the whole system has the potential to break down. Um, now you can do that for a while and it's going to be expected and incumbent on a lot of residents to really work at their maximum capacity for a long time. But just remember when you're done or when you have the opportunity to realize that your red line is not a safe and normal place to work for the rest of your life. Don't let your red line become your new baseline. Um, and I would, I would, caution both of you, um, you know, it, it, it feels like you're, you're Superman and Superwoman at this point in your life and you can do everything and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful feeling, but there is a time when gearing back is actually the smart thing to do 
to uh, have a, a long, um, so I think that's something, uh, you know, I just caution you. I've been there. I've done that and um, got the t-shirt. I um, mean, I'll also mention, you know, just on the horizon, uh, life gets, life gets a lot better. Life gets better once you're, once you're out and you have a lot more freedom and flexibility. So I'll start with Sri on this question. How do you feel that ophthalmology as a residency is misunderstood? Um, I have my thoughts on it, but how is it different than you thought it was going to be? Or how do you feel like it is different than people on the outside of ophthalmology perceive it? Oh my goodness. It's so much harder than I thought it would be. Um, I think uh, definitely from looking from the outside in, it looks like the specialty that is very, you know, nicely clinic based. And um, I think there's a perception that, you know, home call is this, is this glorious thing where you get to be at home and you're rarely called in. But, you know, I think it's especially unfortunate, again, and I already said this before, but as ophthalmology is cut out of medical school curricula, people are getting less exposed to any information about the eye. And as a result, I think we're seeing a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with eye problems. And um, I think for that reason, you know, our call is very misunderstood by a lot of people. I would say that our, our home calls are actually quite busy. Um, we're called in quite often. And oftentimes for things that may not actually be ophthalmic emergencies, and that's really hard to, get, to convince people on the other side of the phone. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're just not as comfortable around the eye, which is understandable. And that's what we're here for, is to help address those questions. But it's definitely something that, you know, I didn't realize as much when I was a medical student. Um, and definitely, I don't think is very well understood by even my, my friends who, when they saw me starting um, my ophthalmology residency in my call, were quite shocked by the busyness of the call. I think the other thing that's quite misunderstood is probably just the extent of that learning curve, especially the first few months when you're really learning about things that you, unless you had a lot of prior exposure to ophthalmology, which you know, I was very lucky to do a lot of ophthalmology rotations, but very much from the outside in. Um, so I felt like the first few months of ophthalmology residency were extremely difficult trying to learn the lingo and the exam and, and how to be efficient. And, um, and like Dave said earlier, just trying to be good at something when you really have no, no basis yet, no foundation for which to be good. I think that's oftentimes, um, you know, taken for granted just how difficult that initial um, hump can be. Dave, what are your thoughts on that, bud? Yeah, I just, uh, I think Cherie hit so many great points. Um, but for me, you know, we always re read SDN, uh, my wife and I, the opto residency. And the main point of the comments on the thread were ophthalmology has a steep learning curve. And we, and we thought to ourselves, okay, well, you know, what's the big deal? We're just going to get through that hump. But that hump is huge. And when you start out, I don't think residents or medical students understand the amount of volume of material that you have to learn um, you know, as you go through medical school, you're learning the foundations for internal pediatrics, you know, et cetera. But ophthalmology, you get maybe one or two lectures in medical school, and then the rest is through BCSE. Um, and so there's just a huge amount of material. There's an infinite number of instruments and tests and equipment that you have to learn in a short space of time to take care of patients appropriately. Um, and once you get through all of that, then the intraocular surgery kicks in. You know, for us, it's somewhere between first and second year. Um, for other programs, it's starting your third. But that is another huge um, 
huge gap or huge hump that you have to get through. And um, it can be very nerve wracking when you start out and think, oh, am I ever, am I ever going to get good at this? And for me, it took, I would say at least 40 cases before I at least felt comfortable sitting at the scope. Um, and it's taken another hundred to feel like I'm, wow, I'm really doing this. Um, and so, you know, there's just a huge leap. I, I think the problem, and I agree with a hundred percent of what you both said. I think part of the problem is we leave medical school as a, a you know, kind of tooting our own horn here, but I mean, among the most capable, um, probably, you know, when we're through our internship, we're among the most capable interns. I mean, I did a general surgery year um, at the University of Kentucky and, you know, was busting it with the other general surgery residents and, and some, you know, I, I did have some transitional rotations in internal medicine, but it was medicine wards and, you know, doing the, all the crazy stuff. And, you know, when I, when, and I really embraced that because I felt like when I was done with that, it was never really going to come back. I was always going to be in a subspecialty of medicine. And so I really gave myself to my internship just because I wanted to have that experience. So I left my intern year with a really good reputation in the hospital um, as a hard worker, someone who was um, a go-getter, someone who you know, I was presenting at rounds and presenting cases and those sorts of things. And I remember the first day of ophthalmology residency feeling completely lost. And it's a major ego hit because you feel like you are capable and you've achieved X, Y, and Z. And all of that, it's like none of it matters because <laughs> you're starting from scratch. And that is a very difficult transition to go through when it's already intimidating that you are part of this new, very prestigious, you know, highly respected field of very smart people. And you just don't even know the first thing, you know, it's like the old joke, you can code someone and save someone's life, but for the life of you, you couldn't prescribe someone a pair of glasses. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how it's, that's what it's really like. And it's very humbling and it's, and it's really tough. Can I just say that that is so true? Um, you know, as you enter medical school, you think, oh, I, you know, I was smart enough to get in. And then as you get through step one, you think, oh, I was smart enough to get a good score. And then as you match in ophthalmology, you think oh, I was smart enough to match in ophthalmology. But then you look around and realize, well, everyone else was smart too. And you've just self-selected yourself out into this really incredibly competitive and um, intelligent group of people that now you're competing against for, you know, OCAP scores and passing your boards. Um, and so, you know, the bar does just continue to get raised and raised. And um, uh I'm continually humbled by my colleagues um, every day for how, you know, how gifted they are. Can I bring up a related point? Please, Sheree. So I, th I also thought it was really interesting for me when I first started residency that you know, obviously to get to this point, you have to be a very um, both intrinsically motivated, but also extrinsically motivated person. So I felt like, you know, when I was applying to medical school, I had a clear goal to get in. Then when I was in medical school, it was to get to, to match. Um, and now that I'm in residency, it's a little bit tough, especially if I don't know that if I'm going to do fellowship or not, to really have this kind of extrinsic goal that I'm working towards. Um, and that was actually quite difficult for me my first year because there wasn't this definite thing that I was working towards. So instead of it being this like run, it was this very nebulous marathon where I just wasn't sure you know what the end was for me that would make me 
most excited. Um, and I think that was very humbling to get to a point where you say, you know, you can't really look at extrinsic, you know, ideals of achievement and you have to find out, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis or month-to-month -month basis, what makes me happy, um, what makes me feel accomplished and not necessarily look at it as a, what's going to get me to the next step because that next step could be, you know, really hard to define, especially as a, as a first year resident or someone who's not entirely sure what they want to do after residency. Yeah, I think that um, I've, I've had some similar thoughts on that. Um, you know, medical school and, and becoming ophthalmologist, you know, it's a very well-defined path. It's just a very steep and dangerous climb to get there. It's perilous. Not everyone makes it. Many are called and few are chosen. So, you know, it is, there is very little um, variability in terms of how you become an ophthalmologist, but it's a, it's a tough climb to get there. And the tough thing I think you're getting at is, is like when you climb a mountain and you get to the top, what do I do now? Um, do I just make that the new base camp and keep climbing to another peak of another mountain? And is there true satisfaction in the achievement? Uh, and I remember very clearly when I graduated from medical school and, you know, you know, became doctor, you know, had the MD title, you know, for about a week, I, I was really into that. Um, and, and literally, I remember after a week, I was like, you know, you know, I'm just Gary, unless I'm cutting on you or I'm taking care of you, just please call me Gary. Like I just didn't, that didn't necessarily mean something or, or I didn't necessarily find that to be as fulfilling as I thought it would be. And that was the thing that was sort of driving me through medical school is I'm going to be a doctor someday and this is going to be fantastic. And then, you know, I'm going to be an ophthalmologist someday and that's going to be wonderful. But when you're done, you know, I think that you, you really hit on a, a very interesting point that we, we can be so extrinsically focused on achieving certain check marks that um, make us feel like we have um, spent our time wisely, um, investing it in ourselves and in our careers and professional development. But I do think having those intrinsic things where we say, you know, I took care of a person who um, now can see. And that's what is driving me is I really love um, impacting someone's quality of life because I know that that person is going to carry on seeing, um, you know, folks. I'll, I'll, I'll give a little story if you guys will indulge me. Um, I was on a trip to Costa Rica about two weeks ago and I was down there for, um, you know, basically doing charity surgery. And there was a lady who is about 78 and they have free healthcare in Costa Rica, actually wonderful country, wonderfully well-developed country. But in their system, if you want cataract surgery through their socialized system, it's a four-year wait. And um, so she was 78. She felt like she was probably going to die before she was able to have cataract surgery. And, you know, I went down and um, took care of her and saw her the next day. And, um, to, you know, I don't speak that, I don't speak Spanish that well. And, and but the, through the translator, you know, she said, I now can see my grandchildren and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be um, blind until I die. And she hugged me and, you know, it's moments like that, and I, I don't get a lot of those moments. Um, maybe it's, it's uh, you know, 
our, our system that we're in, <laughs> we don't, we don't get that as much, but it was a really wonderful experience for me where I, I kind of recalibrated the why, you know, why am I doing this? Why, what is the big picture? And it was really that hug I got from, from that uh, wonderful woman um, just reminding me that what we do is highly meaningful and it's not about the amount of money we make or the letters after our name or all those sorts of things. But there is someone in Costa Rica right now who is interacting in her community, seeing her grandchildren. And it's because of all those other things that I did thinking that it was, you know, on this pathway towards success um, when the real success is actually found in the interaction and the impact we have on our, on our patients. You know, Gary, I, um, to piggyback off what you just said, I had a similar experience um, just for the first time did a mature white cataract this last week. And um, the guy came in not knowing what he was going to be able to see after the surgery. And um, as soon as we got done and I pulled the drapes off, he became emotional. And for me, that, that really did it for me. Um, it made me look back on the last three years and I said to myself, you know, that was worth it. That 15 minutes of time was worth it. All that pain. Um, and so, you know, I think those, those experiences in our training are few and far between, but they're so powerful um, that they're, they keep us going. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, well, Sheree, any final thoughts uh, before we wrap up? Well, I, first of all, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. I'm so excited. I was a huge fan of ophthalmology off the grid and would listen to it on my drives in to, uh, to actually observe cataract surgery as a first year. So I'm excited that I get to be a small part of it. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I am obviously, I'm very interested to see how residencies tackle um, the emerging importance of emotional well-being and um, productivity in residency and, and actually hopefully changing um, and, and changing the frame shift from being we need to be 100% productive to be considered or 100% efficient or give 100% of ourselves to be considered effective doctors, but also, you know, keeping in mind what are the ways that we can be efficient, but also, um, you know, holistic in our approach as in um, you have the time to to reflect to feel well um, to do the things that make you human as well well in your residencies I think that's becoming an increasingly important issue across the field of medicine and I think ophthalmology can definitely be a, a thought leader in this so I look forward to seeing how that goes excellent that's wonderful we're so happy that you've contributed and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to your perspectives moving forward Dave any final thoughts before we wrap up yeah I also just want to say thank you for letting me be a part of this it's fun for me to be able to talk about these um, hot topics and I hope that maybe my life experience can help somebody else coming up through the system um, I think as we look forward to these next few episodes you know there's so much to talk about um, but I just want to make the point that mentors are so powerful um, you don't need a perfect program. You just need a good program and you can take it anywhere from there. Um, I was lucky to match at my first choice. Um, I know several people that didn't end up at their top choice, but they're doing well in their training because they're working hard and being proactive. You know, as these next um, several uh, years and as the decade unfolds, you know, more and more baby boomers are going to need our services. And as Sheree brought up, you know, we are going to have to be more efficient and effective. And so this leads to, um, figuring out the balance and figuring out how to take care of ourselves amidst um, the sea and ocean of um, ophthalmic need. And so uh, it's an exciting time. It's a challenging time. 
um, but I've never been more excited and very grateful to be a part of it. Well, I, I couldn't uh, agree more. I think that um, we've got a lot to be to be looking forward to. Um, well, that wraps it up for this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. We've got some really exciting programs coming up. I'll also mention that um, as you, the listeners, are, are interested in potentially being part of this program, uh, we will likely be hosting some live uh, webinar-style podcasts, uh, maybe even some video conferences where um, our listeners can be part of the experience, can ask questions, can, can provide dialogue. So um, be looking for that. You can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at CataractMD, and I frequently will post updates to Ophthalmology Off the Grid there. Um, otherwise, you can uh, just check BMC or uh, iTube uh, for uh, further updates. Uh, once again, this has been Dr. Gary Wirtz, along with Drs. Sharif uh, Fathy and Dr. Dave Felstead for Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Till next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Surgical Vision. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts.